the stuff of nightmares. Hey, what's happening, everybody? My name is Rick, and I'll be your guide on this little journey to get your true crime and paranormal fix. We'll be talking about everything from monsters in the closets to monsters next door. So make sure you keep an eye on your neighbor, you look under your bed, you check your closets, because the stuff of nightmares starts now. Warning. This episode may contain graphic descriptions of violence that some people may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. Vampires have been the stuff of nightmares for centuries. Dating back to the 730s AD, there is a written history of vampires either in fables, fiction, or through historical accounts. But it wouldn't be until 1734 that the word vampire would enter the English language through a collection of poems. Then, in 1819, John William Polidori wrote the first published vampire story in English. The short story named The Vampire was mistakenly attributed to Lord Byron and is often cited as the folkloric source of vampirism. But it wasn't until Bram Stoker's novel titled Dracula was published in 1897 that became a literary success and would become the basis for an entire genre in literature and films. In the time before the writing of Bram Stoker, vampires were not what we know today. Vampires were usually people that were afflicted with a disease or sickness and due to the lack of knowledge of the disease were accused of vampirism and killed as a way of controlling the spread of disease. Others were dug up after burial and due to not understanding how a human body decomposes were assumed to be a vampire. The casket would be opened to find a corpse's skin shrunken making their teeth and nails appear to have grown longer and as their internal organs broke down and gases began to build up dark fluid could leak from their nose and mouth, giving them the appearance that they had been drinking blood from the living. The bodies would then either be staked through the heart and decapitated, or they would be decapitated and their bodies burned. Today, vampires are known as blood-sucking creatures that never get old and don't show their reflection in a mirror. They also cannot be outside during the day because the sunlight would either burn or kill them, so they hunt their victims at night. They don't like garlic, can control you if you look into their eyes, and can be killed with a wooden stake through the heart. But these are all movie and book tropes. What about real life vampires? There are a few rare medical conditions that could make someone think they're a vampire, such as porphyria, pellagra, and rabies, which can make those affected show symptoms of being a vampire. Some of those diseases cause exposed skin to burn and blister in the sun, have photosensitivity of the sun, and even have the urge to drink human blood to alleviate some of the symptoms of the diseases. There are people today that practice vampirism and claim to gain energy and power from the drinking of others' blood. They generally consume the blood from donors and it is usually done in private with very few people knowing they drink blood. There are others that claim to be an energy vampire, meaning they consume a person's energy, not their blood. Then there are those that truly embrace the monster, ones that kill, feed on flesh and blood, and truly believe they are a vampire. Richard Chase Richard Trenton Chase was born on May 23, 1950 in Sacramento, California. Richard and his sister were raised in a very strict household 
and he was often the subject of his father's abusive behavior. As his retribution to the violence against him, he would often torture animals and set fires. In his teens, he had a handful of girlfriends but was unable to maintain a relationship for any amount of time as he found he was unable to get aroused in the presence of a woman. Doctors told him it was pent-up rage or mental illness that was the problem keeping him from getting aroused, but it would later be determined much darker, sadistic things are what aroused him. As he got older, he started drinking, smoking pot, and using LSD. Through the use of the drugs and alcohol, Richard would develop hypochondria, which caused him to tell doctors that his pulmonary artery had been removed, his heart would often stop beating, and his blood was turning to powder. At the age of 21, Richard accused his mother of trying to poison him, so his father rented an apartment and made Richard move out. Being alone and having no friends or social life, Richard began to capture and kill various animals, which he would disembowel and eat them raw. He then began to take the entrails and, using a blender, make smoothies which he would drink. He feared his heart was shrinking, and by consuming the smoothies, his heart would not wither to the point of him dying. In 1976, he was hospitalized for blood poisoning after he injected the blood from a rabbit into his veins. He ran away from the hospital, and after he was apprehended, was placed into a mental institution. There, he would share his fantasies with a staff of killing animals, and was once found with blood smeared around his mouth. He claimed the blood was from a cut he sustained while shaving, but staff found it was from two birds he had caught from his bedroom window, snapped their necks, and drank the blood from their wounds. The staff would soon begin to call him Dracula among themselves. After undergoing a battery of treatments using psychotropic drugs, he was released in 1976 to his parents. His mother, feeling her son did not need the medication, started to wean him off the anti-schizophrenic medication. They rented another apartment for him to live, and he resumed his obsession of capturing and killing cats, dogs, and rabbits before drinking their blood. He also developed a fascination with firearms and purchased numerous handguns, which he would practice shooting obsessively. One day in 1977, he went over to his parents' house and rang the doorbell. When his mother answered, he shoved a dead cat in her face, then threw it on the ground, where he proceeded to rip it open with his bare hands and smear blood all over his face. She just turned around, shut the door, and acted like it never happened. It was never reported to police. On August 3, 1977, police discovered Richard's vehicle stuck in a sand drift near Pyramid Lake, Nevada. They did a search of the vehicle and found two rifles, some clothes, a bucket of blood, and a cow's liver. After a quick search, they found Richard in a field covered in cow's blood. He claimed it was his blood that was leaking from his skin. Things were beginning to ramp up for Richard. On December 27, 1977, someone fired a pistol into a home in Sacramento. Police found the bullet in the kitchen, no one was harmed, and police had no witnesses or leads. On December 29th, Richard would take his first victim. 51-year-old Ambrose Griffin was helping his wife take groceries from the car into the house when a car drove by and started shooting. Ambrose was hit and killed in the drive-by shooting. Through ballistics, 
Police determined it was the same gun that shot into the kitchen in Sacramento, a 22 caliber handgun. At this point, police did not know who the shooter was. For the first few weeks of January 1978, Richard would go into houses that had unlocked doors and take valuables. That is, until one day he came across 22-year-old Teresa Whalen. He walked inside the house while the pregnant homeowner was taking a trash can to the curb. He surprised her when she came back inside and shot her three times, once in the hand, which was a defensive wound, and twice in the head. He drug her body into the bedroom where he raped the deceased woman while stabbing her chest with a butcher knife. Richard went to the trash can and removed an empty yogurt cup, then used it to collect the blood that had pulled on her abdomen. He then grabbed the knife and used it to dissect her lifeless body. He proceeded to cut open her torso below the sternum and pulled out her spleen and her intestines. He then repeatedly stabbed her in the lung, liver, diaphragm, and left breast, removing the nipple. He continued his gruesome mutilation by removing her kidneys and slicing her pancreas in two before placing the kidneys back in her body. He picked up the yogurt cup, drank its contents, and tossed the empty container beside the body, then went to the bathroom. There he smeared her blood all over his face and licked the remaining liquid from his fingers before grabbing animal feces off the floor and putting it in her mouth. Then he left the bloody scene for her husband to come across when he came home from work. On January 11, 1978, Richard walked up to a former high school classmate, Nancy Holden, and asked her for a cigarette. He then grabbed her arm and forced her to give him the whole pack. On January 23, 1978, Richard bought two puppies from a neighbor. He killed them and drank their blood, then tossed their bodies back into the neighbor's yard. A few days later, on January 27, 1978, 38-year-old Evelyn Miroth and her 6-year-old son were babysitting her 22-month-old nephew, David. Her 51-year-old friend, Dan Meredith, had come over to check on Evelyn, and she asked if he could watch the kids so she could take a bath. Richard, finding the door unlocked, walked into the house, and when Dan walked into the hallway to see who had come in, Richard shot him in the head. As Jason ran into his mother's room, Richard shot David in the head, then followed the little boy into the room before shooting him two times in the head. Richard then went into the bathroom and shot Evelyn in the head. He pulled her body from the bathtub and placed it on the bed, where he proceeded to sodomize her and drink her blood from slits he had made on the back of her neck. When he had finished sodomizing her, he stabbed her multiple times in the anus with such brutality that the knife penetrated her uterus. He then cut open her abdomen and drained the blood into a bucket, which he consumed before trying to cut out her eye. He then turned his attention back to David's body. He took the little body into the bathroom, where he cracked open his skull and ate some of the brain matter. Outside, a six-year-old neighbor girl, who was supposed to have a playdate with Jason, knocked on the door, startling Richard. Richard ran out of the house with the baby and used Dan's car to escape the scene. When the girl went home and told her mom she saw movement in the house, but no one answered the door, neighbors became worried. One of the neighbors broke into the house to find the grisly murder scene. As police arrived at the scene of the crime, Richard was at his house mutilating the baby's body. 
he chopped off the boy's penis, which he used as a straw to drink blood from the boy's body. He removed and consumed several organs and made others into smoothies before dumping the body at a nearby church. Meanwhile, police on the scene of the murder noticed a perfect handprint and shoe print in Evelyn's blood that matched prints that they had taken from one of the other previous murder scenes. While interviewing the neighbors, they find an 11-year-old witness that described the suspect who matched an FBI profile of the suspected murderer and a man that had been seen walking around trying to sell magazines in the neighborhood. On February 1st, 1979, Nancy Holden called police and told them to investigate Richard Chase after seeing the profile released by the FBI. Police ran a background check on Richard, and when it came back he owned a 22 caliber semi-automatic pistol, they wanted to speak to him. Police showed up at his door, but Richard refused to come out and talk to them, so they waited for him to leave his apartment. When Richard thought police had left, he came out of the apartment carrying a box. They took him into custody wearing an orange parka that had dark stains and wearing sneakers that appeared to have blood stains on them. When police went into his back pocket to retrieve his ID, the wallet they pulled out was not his, but Dan Meredith's. Inside the box, they found blood-soaked wallpaper pieces and a 22 caliber handgun still covered in blood. Richard tried to convince the police the blood on the paper and gun was from the dogs he had killed, but investigators were not buying it. When investigators searched his apartment, they found nearly everything in it was covered in blood, including the ceiling, walls, countertops, cooking utensils, and even on the refrigerator. They found the blood-covered blender, which he used to make his slushies, on the counter, and police were horrified by what they found inside the refrigerator. Inside a Tupperware container, they found what was left of the brain from young David, and pieces of his body were stored in wrapped plastic. Various animal parts, as well as internal organs from both Teresa Wallen and Evelyn Maroff. On the kitchen counter, there were various pet collars, and laid out on the kitchen table were several diagrams of the internal structure of the human body. Richard was arrested and charged with murder. The prosecution would be looking to charge Richard with first-degree murder with the intent on seeking the death penalty. Richard's attorney, however, entered a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity. During a pretrial motion, the defense asked for and received a change of venue, noting the publicity the murders had made in the town, and the trial was moved over 120 miles away to Santa Clara County. On January 2, 1979, Richard Chase stood trial on six counts of murder. The defense tried to have the charges dropped to second-degree murder in order to avoid the death penalty because of Richard's history of mental health issues. On May 8, 1979, Richard Chase was found guilty on six counts of first-degree murder. His defense attorney asked for some clemency in the sentencing which the judge denied, stating that Richard was not legally insane and knew the difference between right and wrong. He was sentenced to death via the gas chamber. During his time in prison, other inmates learned how gruesome his crimes were and began to fear him. Some inmates tried to talk him into killing himself, as they were afraid of him and were too scared to kill him themselves. On December 26, 1980, a prison guard doing a cell check found Richard lying face down in his bunk with his legs on the floor. He was dead. 
an autopsy showed his cause of death was suicide by overdose. He had apparently been saving his antidepressant pills for weeks before his suicide. Hey there, I'm Tony Palacio, host of There Is Something Out There, a new podcast dedicated to true crime, the mysterious, macabre, unsolved, and unexplained. From the beautiful Pacific Northwest, home of Bigfoot and some of America's most notorious serial killers, I'm going to present to you the world's worst crimes, scariest monsters, strangest stories, tall tales, and totally terrifying testimonials. Join me as we discover that the noises you hear may not just be your imagination. There is something out there. You can find me wherever you get your favorite podcasts from, including Stitcher, Spotify, Player FM, Amazon, and Google Podcasts. Thank you. Like what you're hearing so far? Make sure to never miss an episode by clicking the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. Now back to the show. Every day, people all over the world encounter things they cannot explain, things that terrify them, and things that defy logic. But not everything can be rationalized. Not everything has a logical explanation. Not everything can be proven by science. In fact, according to Dr. Ethan Seigel, when it comes to science, proving anything is an impossibility. It is a theory based on a lot of evidence to validate a specific idea over a period of time. He states, nothing in science can ever truly be proven. It's always subject to revision. If that in fact is the case, why are some people so skeptical of things that cannot be explained? Over the years, dozens of plant and animals thought to be extinct have been identified. Just last year alone, California Academy of Science researchers discovered 71 new animal and plant species. So is it out of the realm of possibility that people are seeing cryptids, UFOs, ghosts, and Bigfoot? To those that have seen or experienced these unknown phenomena, it is real and terrifying. Many choose to keep their experiences to themselves for fear of being ridiculed or ostracized. Many are looking for validation from others to ensure that what they saw or experienced was truly real and not just in their head. And then there are those that know what they experienced and want to help others by sharing their experiences. These are their stories. Our first set of experiences tonight is from Angela in Oklahoma. My name is Angela, and I was going to tell you about the time whenever me and my cousin was playing when we were little kids. I was about seven years old at the time. And uh, where he lives out in the back of his house is like a little mountain back there. And there's these pines are all, you know, all over that property there. And anyways, as me and him was playing, I started hearing these trees breaking. And, and it was pretty good size, size you know, the pines. And uh, the tops of the trees were disappearing out of the sky, that mountain up there. And me and him took off running and went back to the ha- running to the house, scared. We didn't we didn't know what else it could you know what it to be. We figured it had to be a bigfoot coming at, from up there because I've heard that they're in that area. So got in the house and was telling his mom about it, and she just wanted to act like you know it's probably with nothing. But anyways, it, later on we find out that she also had a big a Bigfoot experiences herself a few years later. 
few years back, there was a, uh, my mom was having me practice driving at night, and uh, I wasn't of age to be driving yet, but she, I was getting close to it. I was close to 16. So she, about dawn, she would take me out and have me, you know, start getting practicing for nighttime driving. And my mom was such a wreck about me driving, but I wasn't driving bad, but she just wanted me to control that wheel. She, she was all uptight about it. But anyways, she was too busy concerned about me. And I seen a Bigfoot squatted down in, at a ditch, getting water in his hand and drinking it. And I was probably 75 to 80 yards from it. And uh, it stood up and there was a barbed wire fence right by the ditch. You know how the height of the, the barbed wire fence, the top wire, it stepped over that like if you were stepping over a log and in two steps it was out of sight. It was a couple of years ago it had rained a whole lot and it had flooded pretty good around the area so there's a lake we was wanting to go to but we had to wait for the water to go down and so after a few days we went back to the lake to see how much the water had went down and it was down enough to drive down that road to it you can see it got pretty deep because there was uh, debris up in the trees about five foot from the, the water had flooded that, that high up anyways my friend she said let's just pull up to the lake and show your headlights across the water so look at the lake you know so i did that and she looked across the lake you know and then i was like well let's turn the vehicle around and i'll back up to it and we said i'll tell it you know so as i was turning my vehicle around the headlights were shining across the lake and she said hold up hold up i just seen something and uh so i start turning my wheels back you know facing the hit the lake again and she said, hang on, I think I just seen something. And uh, it was a, there was a sign across from where we was at that was reflecting. And she said, that might be it. She said, but go ahead and, and keep turning your wheels and go a little further. It might be, it may have been nothing at all, maybe it was just that sign. Well, I, so I turned my wheels a little further and, and turned my headlights a little bit out across the lake over. And she said, oh, there is something over there. And uh, we're looking at it and, and she said, turn your headlights on bright, you know works it better so I do that and that thing is I don't know what it was it was like it wasn't a bobcat or nothing like that it was about the size of a panther I guess like if you've seen a cat sitting down with no fur on it it just seemed to be showing skin only and there was no I didn't notice no ears no tail um but it had eyes that would glow from the headlights I noticed that but I don't know what it was at all but anyways it was sitting there and it was watching these minnows swimming around and you could see his eyes reflecting into the water as he was staring down in the water watching these fish swimming around in there and so enthused i guess with it that for some reason it didn't even notice me shining our, our headlights at it at all anyways after we was there for a few minutes looking at it she wanted to leave because she was, said it scared her and she wanted to go but it didn't do anything except for sit there and watch the fish all right i guess that's it thanks for sharing your experiences angela the following is Mike's experience in New Jersey. Hello, my name is Mike. Uh, around March of 1983, me and my friend was going camping, uh, Vernon Valley, uh, Hamburg area off of Sampon Road in New Jersey. Got dropped off by my parents at my grandmother's house. Weather conditions were foggy dark so around six o'clock started hiking up to the uh, sand pond which is called black ash swamp on our way there uh, something followed us on the trail on and off the trail we approached the lake uh, we felt something was still 
following us. We heard some noises. We got down to the campsite. We decided to go up to the patrol cabin at the time, which is another quarter mile on top of Vernon Valley uh, to spend the night because of the weather conditions weren't good. Um, we got to the patrol building, unloaded our gear, took our container down, which was a, a cooler, to the spring, which was on the backside of the mountain. We proceeded down to the spring, got there, uh, started filling up our Coleman cooler. Uh, we heard something coming from behind us through the swamp. Uh, was making a kind of a loud uh, noise coming through the swamp in the water at the, the time. Uh, we shut our flashlights off. Approximately two minutes later, whatever this was, yelled out a loud screech. Uh, scared us both. At that time, we waited there another minute. We stood up with our cooler, turned our flashlights on, and started up the trail. Uh, in the meantime, this thing screeched again, very loud, uh, very scary. We started to run, got up the trail, this Bigfoot, whatever was behind us, we could hear it. It was running in between the trail and the woods. Felt like it was right behind us, like the hand was like reaching toward us. You could hear it like literally breathing, made it dropped the cooler we both dropped the cooler I believe it fell over the cooler because I heard I heard a grunting sound as it fell and we got some time between whatever that was to the top of the hill we made it to the patrol building closed the door I look out the window I see this very tall thing nine ten feet high you could see the silhouette of it coming kind of through the fog. The light was in the background. Uh, probably, I would say probably the moon at the time. Uh, focused on us, came over to the patrol building. We put the chair against the door, locked the door. Uh, loaded my 22 rifle at the time. Uh, we fired a few shots through the door. I'm not sure if we hit it or not. The uh, thing left for a while, it came back, it was pushing against the back of the uh, patrol building, which is on cinder blocks. The building would literally move or shake, whatever it was doing. Um, fired a few more shots through the building. At that time, things calmed down for a few hours. During the night, it circled the cabin. We were up all night. The next morning, we found blood on the uh, outside the door by the fire pit. We weren't sure if we hit it or not. Early next morning, we decided to go down to the lake to go fishing, swimming, spend our day at the lake. On the way down, we stopped at the old ski lodge, which is abandoned. We went underneath the building in the basement, exploring, uh, didn't do much there. On our way out, we closed the door. There was a hinge on there, we locked it. We proceeded to the lake, 
uh, toward evening we came back from the lake got to the patrol building around eight nine o'clock at night we hear a loud noise coming from the building a lot of pounding um, we, whatever it was we locked in the basement of the building the next morning we go down to see what was going on and the door was off the hinges it was totally destroyed and shreds whatever was there it was it was gone or we didn't see it anymore so we decided to pack our gear went to my grandmother's house called my parents in pennsylvania to come get us and we we never went back since so that's pretty much it rick thank you mike for sharing your experiences with us And finally, here are a few of Kelly's experiences. Hi, my name is Kelly. I live in Florida. I travel a lot and I'm originally from uh, central Pennsylvania, York, Pennsylvania. I have a few experiences. One experience was I was at the Gettysburg Hotel with my two boys. We were there for the 150th anniversary. So we stayed at the Gettysburg Hotel and I noticed I had done some research on it and there's a ghost that does frequent that area her name the hotel her name is Rachel so that day that night we go into the room my one son takes off his shirt and he throws it and I can't find it anywhere looking under the bed looking in the looking all over the place maybe it fell between the dresser and the drawer or the walls and I can't find it so before we go to bed that night I just say into the room I said I really like that shirt our friend gave it to him as a birthday gift I would really like to get it back so then the boys asked me, they're like, Mama, who are you talking to? And I'm like, just the universe. We went to bed that night. The next morning I wake up and it's under the um, luggage rack, sitting perfectly right on the floor, plain as can be seen. It was not there before we went to bed. So I think it was taken and then it was given back. Another story I have is, oh, in our house here in Florida. So I had said to my husband once before, I'm like, oh, you know, I said, I think something's in the house, nothing bad, but I don't know. And he's like, no, I don't think there is. So a couple years later, he calls me back, calls me, I'm up in Jersey, he's in Florida, and he's like, mm, I think you might be right. And I'm like, oh, why, what happened? And he said, well, he's like, I was ironing my shirt to go to work, and the iron was plugged in, and I ran out of water for the steam, so I went to go put the plugged in iron under the faucet while it was running, and he said, and in the um, utility room, which is right beside the bathroom, that's where um, he was, he said the vacuum cleaner went on all of a sudden. And the vacuum cleaner that he was talking about, it has the on-off switch is actually under a handle. So it couldn't have gone on. So he said, right as he was about to put the plugged in, turned on iron under the running water, the vacuum went off. So I was like, oh, well, at least it's a good entity. It's not going to, you know, it didn't want you to get killed. Um, another story down here so my husband we live in an area that is reclaimed swamp so it's filled up swamp very established um, neighborhood so we we had gone out to dinner and at the end of our street there's a bridge that goes into a swampy area that goes to a pond so it's an old florida um, uh, forest area so we're coming out and we hear this unearthly screech like made the hair on our hand our arms stand up the back of our neck stand up and we looked at each other and we ran in the house and we like slammed the door and locked the locked the doors. We were telling our neighbors about it a couple of days later and they're like, oh, those are the monkeys from 
the uh, P.T. Barnum train that had derailed years ago. So the story is that there was a P.T. Barnum train that was traveling and it had derailed and the car that had the monkeys in it had, I guess, fallen open. And so all the monkeys got out and now they travel through central Florida. And you never really see them, but people do hear them once in a while. Another story I have is, oh, this was in Ray Myers Hollow, which is in Pennsylvania, central Pennsylvania. So I was with my girlfriends, we're 16, and so we're driving around Ray Myers Hollow. And Ray Myers Hollow, anyway, is kind of a creepy place because it's in like a valley area, so there's always seems to be a fog hanging around. So we're driving by this house that always had a light on in the one room, and it was like a, um, it was an abandoned house. So. We were driving by it, and every time we drove by it, which was, I think, three times, my car stalled every time. Now, I was 16, driving a stick shift. Maybe it was user error. Who knows? But every time we drove by that house, my car stalled. Oh, another. So my ho- So I was staying at a hotel in Rochester, New York. So the hotel room, normal hotel room, yeah, modern hotel, no big deal. But I was at the last room on the corner of the building. So I go to bed that night and I hear a knocking on the wall, but the wall was the outside wall because my I was in the corner room, so the two, two walls were actually the outside, two walls. So I heard a knocking noise, it was three times. I got up and I looked around, I didn't see anything. I went actually went to the door, looked out the peephole, it wasn't from there, but I knew the knocks weren't from that door, it was from the outside of the hotel. So I laid back down. There was another three knocks. At this point, I turned the lights on because I didn't know what was going on. And then I went back, I laid back down again, and then I heard like a dragging noise across my floor in front of the bed. And it was definitely like something was being dragged across the floor. Then there's the three knocks. And I just thought to myself, just, I'm not going to look. I don't want to see what's out there. And I just closed my eyes and the knocking finally stopped and I went to bed and that is it. And thank you, Kelly, for sharing your experiences with us tonight. Well, that's it for this week's episode of the stuff of nightmares podcast. Thanks for listening. If you would like to find out more about today's topic, you can check out our sources in the show notes on Facebook and our website at www.thestuffofnightmares.show. Like share and follow us on Facebook as well as subscribe and give us a positive review on your favorite podcast app or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have an experience that you would like to share with the show, you can either email me to admin at the stuff of nightmares podcast dot show or message me through Facebook. I am your host, Rick Ness. I will see you next episode where I hope to find out what keeps you up at night.